0: Well, I want to start this morning, uh, before we get into our text in Acts 8, by taking you back to the very first traumatic experience of my life. I'm being serious here, all right? Let me set the stage. I was in fifth grade, so for me, it was the fall of 1986. I think I was around 11 years old, and uh, I had life made. I mean, literally, we, we lived in a house with a pool. We were in South Georgia. If you've ever been to South Georgia, it's a good thing to have a pool, right? We had a house with a pool. I had a best friend. I was on a great soccer team. There was a girl I had a crush on. She was starting to show a little bit of interest in me. I'd just been elected to the student council with my fifth grade class. And then one day, all my perfect world came crashing down. My parents gathered me and my three, uh, my brother, my older sisters, their four children together one night. You know where this is going, right? They said, kids, we have something exciting to tell you. With smiles on their faces, they told us we were moving to Virginia. I couldn't believe it. I don't remember anything else the rest of that night except I know I cried myself to sleep. Now here's, yeah, oh, thank you for that. I appreciate whoever did that. Uh, he, here's what's true about this. My parents said all the right things. They did what parents do, which is, you'll be okay. You'll make new friends. The school's there actually better. There's all kinds of opportunities where we're moving, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't hear any of that. Didn't even matter if all that stuff was true. All I knew was I had to move. I had to leave the world that I loved. I had to say bye to friends. I had to say goodbye to that cute girl. I had to kind of disengage from my soccer team, et cetera. Now, fast forward 30 plus years, I've had a lot of other kinds of loss, as anyone has that's been around this world uh, more than a little while. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that all loss kind of follows this same pattern. In fact, you might think of it this way. All loss is a type of displacement. You're somewhere that you enjoy, you're comfortable maybe, and then something comes into your world, something comes into your life, something happens, and you're forced to move. You're forced to live into a new reality that you weren't prepared for. You're forced to pick up and leave what you knew behind and were comfortable with and live in something that may be very, very difficult. All loss is a form of displacement. And it follows this very familiar pattern for all of us. Some of you in the room right now are living in a season of displacement. Something has come into your life. Something's come into your family. Something's come into your world. Maybe recently, maybe a while ago, and you're still in it. You're still struggling with the move. It feels unfair. In fact, the reality, if we think about it for a minute, all of us are in one of three places right now. You've either just been through a season of displacement, and you've kind of recovered, living in new reality now. Number two, you're in one now. Or number three, there's one coming Right? These are like waves that hit us. You can't escape living on this earth for very long at all. So let me give you some ideas of forms of the displacement or forms of displacement that are in the room even this morning. Some of you are here, you've literally been geographically displaced. You're visiting this church. Maybe you're new to the area. You don't necessarily want to be here. You don't want to be in Middle Tennessee or you don't want to be a fellowship Bible, but you find yourself here today because you've been geographically or physically displaced. Some of you have been relationally displaced. Right? You're newly divorced or you've broken up with someone or there's some tension in a relationship. You're afraid things are gonna change or you just have lost whatever connection you felt like you used to have and you're living in this new reality. Some of you have been displaced in your health or someone in your family are not healthy. They're not flourishing and it's affecting you. Maybe it's you, maybe it's someone that you care about. Some of you are in a season of loss. Right? There's some grief that has displaced you. You're no longer comfortable. You're empty. You feel every day a loss of someone that you care about that's not with you any longer. We are all familiar with these. Here's the question. When we're in a season of displacement, where does faith come in? Like what does it mean about God? If he's sovereign, if he's in control, if he's apparently loving, right? Why would he allow these things? Could he even then be the author of some of these things? And if so, what would that actually mean? Our text this morning is hope for a people Who've been displaced. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 8. We're gonna continue on in our study of Acts, and what we get to in this chapter is the first great displacement of the church, and it's a doozy. I mean, it's a big one. Um, This is a, a people that are entering into persecution. These are people that are literally displaced from their homes. It's not through their choice, it's not what they wanted, in fact, it's even violent. As we're going to see, and through our text, through this passage, with the first eight verses of Acts chapter 8, what we're going to find is we're going to find hope for us in the displacing events and seasons of our lives. So let me catch you up if you haven't been with us through this series. In fact, last week we recapped our series prior to the end of the year, which was Acts 1 through 6. And here was kind of a theme, a pattern that we saw emerging throughout the uh, the book of Acts, throughout the first six chapters. The church, which was born in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit arrived, kept encountering challenge after challenge. And yet through every challenge, it not only survived, but it grew and it thrived. That's kind of where we've been. But so far, the church has been centered only in Jerusalem. We're gonna see that change now in Acts chapter eight. Now, what happens between Acts six, where we left off, and Acts chapter eight? Let me summarize and and get us up contextually to our text this morning. In the middle of chapter six, the apostles, the 12 apostles, realize this church has grown to such a size that they can no longer govern and administrate it alone. So they choose seven men, who are trustworthy, and those seven men uh, take on the responsibility of helping to administrate the needs of the body. One of those seven men was a man named Stephen, and the rest of chapter six and all chapter seven centers on Stephen. You may recognize his name. If you know anything about Stephen, what you probably know about Stephen is he was the first martyr for the church. He was the first uh, man, as far as we can tell, first man or woman that lost his life for the sake of Christ. Now, how did this happen? Well, He was raised up to help lead the church. Part of that was serving the tables, but he also, according to the back half of chapter six, he began preaching and, and, and ministering and God was doing some miraculous things through him. It got the attention of the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities. They arrested him, just like they had Peter and John and the other apostles earlier. They put him on trial and his defense is, just like Peter, a sermon about Jesus. And he starts in the Old Testament, and he's describing how everything in the Old Testament, including and most importantly, the temple itself, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as soon as he goes there, i.e. threatening their temple, i.e. threatening their religion, they go after him. And I want you to see the end of chapter 7. I'm just going to read a few verses. They won't be on the screen. But look at Acts 7, beginning in verse 57, and we'll read about the death of Stephen. But they cried out. They is the council that were, had him on trial. They cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Uh, remember the word martyr. We talked about it uh, earlier in our series. Martyr in Greek just means witness. So here Stephen is being a witness for Christ. In fact, even in his final words, he's being a witness of Christ. Right? He's pointing to the death of Jesus. His words are very similar to what Christ had said on the cross. And he is martyred or he is killed which is what we now think of that term meaning as someone who dies. Stephen becomes the first martyr for the faith. Now we get into chapter 8. Let's take a look at the consequence or the effect of this uh, death of Stephen on the church. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. The death of Stephen was the first domino to fall that started the first widespread persecution against the church. Now, this was not yet the the Roman persecution that you read about under Nero and other emperors. We're not there yet. This was persecution by the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, and it was led by this man named Saul that obviously we're going to hear a lot more about him uh, in the future, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, Now, I want you to realize this persecution caused literal displacement. So if you're in Jerusalem at that time and you're a follower of Jesus, you have to leave your home, you have to flee, you have to leave your community, your extended family, you have to leave your job, everything that you know, and you're suddenly a refugee. That was essentially the effect of this persecution that breaks out uh, right after the the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, Let's continue in verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. Hard to imagine how terrifying this would have been. Um, But just try for a minute. Just try to imagine there's there's persecution against Christians in, in our country, which could happen. Could happen someday. And you can no longer be public with your faith. So what do you do? You withdraw from the streets and you kind of hide yourself in your home where you should be safe. Suddenly there's someone pounding on the door and it's someone that wants to arrest you and the authorities break in. Now the irony in this is in this context in the first century, these were the temple guards, more than likely. This was the original religious authority. These weren't Roman guards that were persecuting here. So pounding on your door and there's Saul. Who is Saul? He was a scholar. Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He represented the religion that you had come from in your faith. He's now accusing you of being a heretic. He pulls you out, pulls your spouse out. You find yourself both in prison. This would have been terrifying. Uh, Saul, who later became Paul, the great evangelist. But before he was Paul, the evangelist, he was Saul, public enemy number one of the church. You see this contrast between verse two and three. These these devout men made lamentation as they buried Stephen, but, verse three, a contrasting word, but Saul began ravaging the church. I did a little work on that word ravaging. It's the only time in the whole New Testament that the Greek word that's translated here appears. The only time, ravaging. Uh, We have a clue of what it means because um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. The translation of Psalm chapter 80, verse 13, when they translate that into Greek, they use the same word. It's the only other time it appears, in rather the Old or the New Testament, in the Greek. Here's what it is in reference to in Psalm chapter 80. It's a wild boar that had gotten into the vineyard, which represented Israel, and was ravaging the vineyard. Same word. So what the author Luke in Acts is essentially saying here, Saul was out of control. Like he's a wild animal. He has such fury. He has such venom. He has such energy against the cause of Christ that he is ravaging the church. And of course, what's so detestable about all of this is it's all being done in the name of God. And Saul would later say, I I was the top of the food chain. I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. You know, I was from the right tribe. I was from all of these kinds of things. And, and he, no doubt, as he was throwing people in prison, was calling them heretics. He was doing it for the sake, he thought, of his God. How much irony that years later, Paul now would find himself in prison for the cause of Christ. Right? And God would, I think, sort of gently remind him and teach him that just as you were putting those followers of mine in prison could not hold back my cause. So you, saw will be an instrument for the gospel even in chains, even in prison yourself. By the way, number two, don't forget that Christians are still persecuted today. We kind of forget this and we're insulated here in, in um, the Bible belt here. Uh, however, It doesn't take a lot of searching on the internet. Just search persecuted Christians or search Christian refugees. Um, Many of the refugees that are part of the current refugee crisis are there because of religious persecution against their faith. Not all of them, but a large number of them are. This is a reality in our day and time. Not very different than what was happening here in Acts chapter eight. Let's go on to verse four. This is an amazing verse. I won't seem that way at first, but it is. Verse four. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, let's unpack this. We're gonna take some time on this one. Uh, Phrase by phrase, let's go through this, and I think you'll see how remarkable this verse is. Therefore, let's just start with the first word. Um, Therefore is signifying there is a cause and effect going on. There is a connection. There is a, a causation, all right? So there's been this great and terrible persecution. No doubt about it, it's awful, it's violent, it's sudden. It's, it's ripping families apart. It's, it's throwing people in prison and creating all these refugees. But the effect of that is the preaching of the word. In other words, the preaching of the gospel is the, various, the very thing that Saul and the others were trying to stop, but the net effect of their efforts is the preaching of the gospel now in a broader context. You might say it this way, the displacement of Jesus' followers led to more people hearing about Jesus. You know, much to the chagrin of Saul, I can imagine. Um, Eugene Peterson, you may recognize that name. If you've heard of the message, the message is a paraphrase of the Bible. It was written by Eugene Peterson. I love the way he paraphrases Acts 8, verse 4. Forced to leave home, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Isn't that beautiful? Forced to leave home, the followers of Jesus. All became missionaries. That's, that's the therefore in this. Let, let's talk about the next phrase. Those who had been scattered. Who had been scattered? Not the apostles. The apostles were staying back in. In fact, um, it had already sort of been shown that they were a little bit untouchable for now. The reason they were untouchable is the religious authorities could not refute the miracles that were done by them. So the people, common people, were gonna rise up if they were put to death. Who was scattered? All the other People. The non-apostles are the ones preaching. Here's why this is remarkable. Through the first six and a half chapters of Acts, the only people that are preaching are the apostles. Chapter six, another man begins preaching, Stephen. He gets killed. So what happens is Saul inadvertently transformed a church of thousands of people, but only a few preachers, into a church of thousands of preachers scattered about the region. See, this is how God is working in this. So those who had been scattered are the ones that are now doing the preaching. And don't think formal preaching from a stage, you know, with a pulpit and all that. This is just sharing God's word. This is what we're all called to be. They're living as witnesses, as Jesus had uh, invited them and commanded them to be. Everybody's now spreading the news. One other remarkable detail of this verse, I wanna drill down on the word scattered. Those had been scattered scattered. Um, You do some digging, you find that that word comes from a root verb, spiro, in Greek. Why is that significant? Spiro is how you sow seed, how you scatter seed. So farmers, you know, you didn't have all the machinery of today, obviously. They they would would walk through, you know, a lot of people probably shoulder to shoulder walking through the field. They'd have these baskets of seed, and and they would spiro, they would scatter the seed. You remember, we studied in, in Mark's gospel a while ago, there was a parable of the soils, where Jesus said a farmer was sowing, he was scattering seed, same verb. Some of the seed fell on the road, some of the seed fell on the rocky places, some of the seed fell on the thorns, some of the seed fell on good soil and produced a crop hundredfold the original seed. Same word is being used here to apply to the scattering of the church. And Jesus interpreted that parable of the soils for his disciples he said the seed is the word of god now acts chapter 8 the seed is the word of god it's been scattered because of persecution who's the sower who's the farmer satan only thinks he's the one that scattered the church god's the ultimate farmer here now before you take that too far god is not the author of evil God did not put in the hearts of Saul and others to rip families apart, etc. but God is simply doing what God always does, taking all things and working them together according to his purpose, working them together for good. According to his purpose. That's what God does. You might think of it this way. He's taking something intended for evil. In fact, that was evil. And even the evil, he's turning it around into something spectacular. The word of God is being preached. And oh, by the way, where were they scattered to? Look back really quickly at verse 1. Just let your eyes glance up there. And midway through verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why is that significant? the very place Jesus had commanded them to go in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the remotest parts of the earth. And so to understand the book of Acts, you have to understand there's sort of three pieces of it and they follow that geographic outline. The first seven chapters take place in Jerusalem. That's where we've been so far. Now the church has been scattered. Where has it been scattered to? Judea and Samaria, you see. The worst, worst, most heinous efforts of the enemy of God is resulting in the plan being played out exactly as God had intended it all along. There's something beautiful in that. Remarkable verse. Let's move on to chapter, uh, same chapter, verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, who's Philip? It's the first time we've met Philip. Uh, Not technically. Philip was one of the seven. Okay, chapter six, there were seven men chosen. Stephen was one. He was killed. Now we meet another one of those seven men, Philip. Philip goes down into Samaria Uh, geographically, uh, according to a map of Israel, you would notice that Samaria is north of Jerusalem. Why would he go down into Samaria? Well, it's an elevation reference. Jerusalem sits up, Samaria's down in the valley. So you would have come up to Jerusalem and you go down out of Jerusalem. He's going north, he's going down uh, topographically, down into Samaria. Uh, Here's why this is significant. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, uh, not at all. In fact, most of you may know that, but do you know why? Um, the Hebrew people considered the Samarians half-breeds. Now, historically, just a really quick summary, because I know like ancient biblical history is not everybody's thing, but it is important. 900 years before Christ the nation of Israel was divided into two. The kingdom of Judah in the south, which was two tribes, including the city of Jerusalem, and 10 tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel. In 722, so now you're about a couple hundred years later, little less, the Assyrian army conquers the northern kingdom, sweeps most of those people away, and brings in foreigners, the remaining Israelites that are there intermarry with those foreigners, and from that, we have the Samaritan people. They were half Jewish, if you wanna think about it this way, and half married in from other places. Now, eventually, Judah itself is also swept away by the Babylonian Empire. When they come back to rebuild the temple, they do not invite this new half-breed Samaritan people to rebuild with them. In fact, they wanna help, and the Jews say, no, 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 you're not pure We're not gonna let you help build the temple. So what did the Samaritan people do? Well, eventually they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And so there's this debate, which one's the real temple? Gerizim or Jerusalem? The Jews despised the Samaritans because they considered them to be half-breeds, not only in their culture, in their blood, but also now in their religion. So for the gospel to go to the Samaritans is a big deal. But Philip's not the first person to preach good news to the Samaritans. Who was? Thank you. Like, that's always the right answer, right? First service had trouble with that answer. I don't know why. It's Jesus, all right? Now... Jesus had gone to the Samaritans one time in particular it's a remarkable story he's passing through Samaria he meets this woman at this well you know some of you know this story he has this incredible conversation with her she runs off to her city and says I think this is the Christ many people come and are healed and Jesus does ministry right there in Samaria Philip is following in the footsteps of his master Philip was a disciple not just in name only He's a follower of Jesus, not just in name only. Look what happens uh, in verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed." It's remarkable to compare this to John chapter 4 when, when Jesus does his ministry in Samaria. It's like, you know, Philip is like, again, doing what Jesus did. It sounds a lot like Jesus. Um, I want you to think of a frequent pattern that you'll see throughout the New Testament when you read about miracles. This is true for Jesus' miracles. Now it's true for the miracles in the early church. The miracles always pointed to the message. You might say it this way. Miracles in the New Testament authenticate the message of Christ so both in Christ's teaching and now the teaching of Philip and other leaders of the early church, miracles were being done. Why were they being done to point people that this is from God, this message is from God. So imagine yourself hearing the gospel message and you're thinking, can this be real? Can this be true? It sounds too good to be true that there was a man I never met that, that died, died for us and I'm a Samaritan, even I can be invited into this. Is this true? Is this real Well a miracle is performed. People are healed. This must be from God. See, that's the purpose. That's a pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. In fact, in fact, throughout the whole New Testament as well. Now, we get to verse 8. I believe verse 8 is the capstone of the whole passage. And I want to tell you why. Let's read it first. So, there was much rejoicing in that city. It's the shortest verse of the bunch. But it packs a punch. So is another, therefore. It kind of gives the consequence of Philip now being in Samaria. There was much rejoicing in that city. The result of Philip and others being displaced from their home in Jerusalem, going now into this region, this area, city in Samaria, is the healing and joy of the city. Joy is actually a sub-theme in Acts. You kind of hear it crop up all throughout. I don't know if you think of joy when you think of Acts, but if you look for it, you'll notice it all over. Talking about people receiving joy, talking about rejoicing, etc. You might say it this way, when you read Acts, everywhere the gospel goes, joy accompanies it. It's really true. It starts in Acts chapter two and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They share the gospel. 3,000 people have joy. It talks about the end of chapter two, the people breaking bread together, sharing everything they have with gladness of heart. Now, up until chapter eight, the joy is contained in Jerusalem. Despite challenges and opposition, the people, the church are joyful. Now chapter eight, the joy is spilling down from the walls of Jerusalem down into Judea and Samaria, and in this city, there is joy. Later on in chapter eight, an Ethiopian eunuch, after he's baptized by this same man, Philip, is going to have joy in his salvation. Fast forward to chapter 13. Paul, formerly Saul, now Paul, is going to begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and there's this incredible verse in chapter 13 that says, as soon as the Gentiles realized the message was also for them, they began rejoicing. Because everywhere the gospel goes, joy accompanies it. In fact, our text this morning, chapter 8, 1 through 8, teaches us that joy is the ultimate result of the scattering of the church. Joy is the terminating point of displacement. That's actually what this text is teaching us if we dare to believe this. I I wanna connect some dots for you. I'm gonna put on the screen a, a part of verse one and then verse eight, and I wanna sandwich them together because you can see the cause and the effect really clearly if we do this. So let me read this to you. Verse one, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered, dot, 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 skip down to verse eight. So there was much rejoicing in a Samaritan city. There's something profound here. There's something even beautiful here. If, If you have eyes of faith to sort of see and begin to apply this, to your circumstance, to our circumstance. Joy is the ultimate result of the displacement. Now, whose joy are we talking about? Let's talk about that first before we get into application. Whose joy are we talking about? Well, first of all, the Samaritans. There's this city that didn't have joy and now there's rejoicing in this city. The Samaritans are rejoicing. Yeah, but you know who else had to have been rejoicing? Philip. It doesn't just say the Samaritans rejoice. It says there was rejoicing in that city. I have to believe Philip's leading the choir. Like right, He's up there. It's like, let me teach you a hymn, okay? This is Philip. He's got a smile on his face, and he's leading the choir because he was the one that God used to bring joy. You ever brought joy to anybody else? I mean, think about moments in your life when we, we just gave our girls a puppy for Christmas, I mean, like we could do anything right now and get away with it with our kids, right? We gave our kids a puppy for Christmas, come on, right? You know who had joy besides the kids? Mom and dad. You know, even though we, we know what's gonna happen, it's like two weeks from now, we're doing all the work. We, we know this, okay, you don't have to tell us. But, but there was joy in this because we're vessels of joy. You see, Philip had joy. The people of Samaria had joy. The scattering of the church is for the joy joy of all of us, of all people, those who receive and those who deliver. Now, why does this matter so much? Let's get into the so what. Let's get into the application. Why does this matter so much? I want to start with this. Joy is one of the deepest desires of the human heart. Like, we we know this, okay? I don't think I have to have an argument to convince you that now we have other words for it we in fact we have kind of shallower lesser words you know i just want to enjoy myself Uh, i just want to be happy in life i want to have fun i want to be comfortable okay all those words are, are kind of lesser expressions of the the true desire which is joy now what is joy spent some time looking at a lot of definitions theological definitions um non-religious definitions of joy. Uh, there's something about this word in human language that's almost sacred. Okay, people don't throw the word joy around a whole lot. You don't say, uh, man, that Chick-fil-A uh, sandwich gave me joy. You know, you say, man, I love Chick-fil-A. You know, I'd go there every day if I could. I, I, I wouldn't say that. it brings me joy, you know? What are you in your life, what would you say? There's probably only two or three things you'd say, man, that really brings me joy. And most of them have a name, I bet. Okay, joy is kind of a sacred word. Here's a little definition of joy I, I kind of pieced together from, from kind of reading some some different things. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being and happiness that's rooted in something enduring. Joy is a pervasive, in other words, it's not just a part of you, it's kind of, it comes all out of you. A pervasive sense of well-being and happiness. Happiness is a part of joy that's rooted in something enduring. It's what every human being wants, but few have. Why not? Why do so few have it? Because most people don't have anything enduring. Your job's not enduring. Your marriage may not be enduring. Your children and their affection for you or their relationship with you aren't necessarily enduring. Your dreams aren't enduring. Your wealth's not enduring. Your entertainment's not enduring. Your home's not enduring. Go on and on and on. Just as the weather changes, the circumstances of our life are not enduring. Most people don't have anything enduring that they can cling to that gives them a sense of well-being and happiness. So in the book of Acts, we suddenly see a lot of people coming to joy. You don't see a whole lot of that before the gospel comes. Joy is a theme in Acts. Why is it? People are finding a sense of well-being and happiness in something enduring. What's the something enduring? It's the good news of Christ that no matter what I do in the future, no matter what I've done in the past, I am loved by a God who sent his son to die for me so that I can be with him eternally. Amen. Amen is right. That's the enduring thing that we latch onto that gives us a sense of joy. Now, what we see in Acts is unbelievers finding joy and believers finding joy. How are unbelievers finding joy? Well, by hearing and believing that good news. Like rejoicing accompanies the gospel all throughout the book. How are believers in Acts finding joy? Well, like Philip, as they're used by God, living out their purpose, what is their purpose? To be vessels of joy to those that have not yet heard. Okay, part of my purpose as a father is to be a vessel of joy to my kids. Doesn't mean I give them everything they want, but in that one moment of the puppy, you better believe I was off the charts, you see. Now, here's the application for our church. God's desire for us is to have joy. It just is Yet his desire for us to have joy is to have joy through the experience of being vessels of joy to other people. Like that's actually gonna be the the, the most rooted and profound sense of joy that you will have as joy flows through you to others. How does this happen? It happens through the scattering of the church. That's how it happens in Acts. That's how it happens today. Now I wanna give you a a little bit of an illustration. Uh, I have in this bag... An old, mysterious object. Anyone know what this is called? What's that? Sid? Yeah, he knows what it does. He doesn't know what it's called. Anyone know what it's called? Yeah, a bellows. Um, We had a funny conversation on Wednesday in worship planning. I asked Joe Blair, I said, Joe, can you find for me a bellows? And uh, Aaron Blanton thought I meant gallows. And he's like, why do you want a gallows? Like, that's so morbid, you know? It's at the beginning of the year. Let's like ease them into it, the year, right? I said, no, 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 it's a bellows, right? What does a bellows do? Okay, it fans the flame, okay? So blacksmiths would use a bellows. Maybe some of you may have one, you know? I had to search the ends of the earth through Joe Blair to find this. And by the ends of the earth, I mean amazon.com, right? <laughs> now, here's how this works. There's oxygen molecules all around, And if we had a fire, let's say this is a fire right here, you know, it's burning oxygen, right? Now, when the air, the oxygen blows against the fire, moves against the fire, the fire burns faster chemically, and so it grows bigger. So I would take this bellows right here, and what's happening as I'm fanning the flame is the, the, the oxygen molecules are being gathered in, and they're being scattered out, and they're being scattered for a purpose. The church is God's bellows in his purpose to bring joy to the nations and glory to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like we aren't the oxygen, that's the spirit who gives faith to believe, but we are an instrument. We are the bellows. Now is this fire gonna burn regardless of us? Yeah, in a sense it will. Yet this is God's chosen instrument to fan the flame Of his church. Now, think about this for a minute. Every week we are enacting this illustration. Sunday mornings is the gathering of the church. Sunday afternoon through Saturday night is the scattering of the church. And this is the rhythm of our worship. We are gathered together to worship, to hear from God's word, to be encouraged, to be empowered, to be equipped. And then we are scattered out, gathered and scattered, gathered and scattered, week in, week out. Our liturgy is set up to reflect this. We start every service with a call to worship. This is the gathering, men and women. Here's why we're here. We end every service with a benediction, which, by the way, is not just a blessing. It's a blessing and a sending because we are blessed in order to be sent. We are gathered in order to be scattered. This is the rhythm of the church. Now, I'm gonna take this, To another place. A church that is known only or almost only for its gatherings is not a church that's living fully according to God's plan for it. Okay, now I I worded that carefully. I don't want to de-emphasize the beauty and the importance of the gathering. I love what we do here. I love our worship. Like I came to this church, wanted to be a part of this church because largely because of the gatherings, the worship, the teaching, the way the Bible is exposited and has been here for 20 years. And there's also some scattering as a part of fellowship. But I want to just remind us and kind of think about this this way, that the more we scatter and not just gather, the more joy will be ours. So what would it look like for us as a church to, yes, continue to send missionaries and empower people all over the world, but also, as Eugene Peterson reminded us, is to become missionaries here. And particularly, I would say, in the areas and in the spaces where we are feeling displacement. And so that's where I want to come back to one more time and land is I want to make this really personal for me, for you. Just as I think the rhythm of our church is gathering and scattering, so the rhythm of your life Gathering and scattering. Gathering and scattering. Now, I want to start just physiologically. Right now, you're gathering, you're scattering. You're gathering, you're scattering. 23,000 times today, you will inhale and exhale. You will gather and scatter. I think that rhythm matches the rhythm of God's sovereignty over the events in your life and the way that he takes even terrible things in your life and works them together for good. There are seasons of my life, seasons of your life, where you're gathered in, right? It's like an inhale. It's like, life's good. My kids are doing well. I'm well-fed and nurtured. I've got a little money in the bank. I've got a good job. I've got stability. My health is relatively fine. and I might even be kind of comfortable. This is a season of gathering. And then there are seasons of scattering. There are seasons, if you want to think of it this way, to be sent out where your life feels like one big exhale. (sighs) What's happening in those moments? Where is God in those moments? Maybe you've been displaced physically, geographically. Maybe you've been displaced in other ways. I know people right now who have been displaced by the loss of a job and they're not sure how they're going to make 2018. I know people right now who have been displaced from their homes to a cancer ward. I know people right now who have been displaced relationally through a marriage that broke apart through a, a dating relationship that's not gonna turn out what they hoped. I know a lot of people who've been displaced through grief, mourning, they miss someone. Some of you feel it heavy. Even right now, I'm speaking these words. It's, it's, it's in us. In each case, we're invited to be witnesses of Christ. In a new and strange land that we did not choose. In fact, it's a land that we would not choose because we don't have the wisdom or the courage to actually choose it for ourselves. Now, I want to take you back to fifth grade, 11 years old. Turns out my parents were right. I did meet new friends. The schools were better. In fact, that very year, fifth grade, I joined the band And don't giggle. That turned out to be a really big deal to me. My friendships, my dating relationships, I took that into college. I even met my wife through the band, okay? I can look back now, but as an 11-year-old, there's nothing good. There's nothing some preacher or even my mom and dad could have said that said, man, this is all for a good purpose. Now, I would have shut that down. Some of you are there right now. Just be real. Be honest where you're at. That's where you're at right now. But if God would give you eyes of faith, not eyes of sight, To see beyond. You would see purpose. You can't yet. Here's where you can. Look back on other displacements in your life. And that'll give you hope for the one that you're currently in. Because here's what we know. We know our Heavenly Father does not allow scattering without purpose. He does not. He does not. And the scattering of the people of God is for the purpose of joy. Others' joy and your joy. It may take a while. Joy is on the way. I want to pray for you. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for those of you that are in a season of scattering, that you'd have eyes of faith, that you would hang in there through the faith that you have to believe that God is in control and God is in good. God is good. And I want to pray for those of you that are in a season of gathering, that he would renew in you a sense of purpose, a sense of energy, that you would expend yourself for the joy of other people and your own joy as you're a vessel, as a witness of Jesus. So bow your heads with me as I pray. Our Father, you have put in us a longing for joy. And that's why these seasons of scattering are so hard because it feels like our joy has been robbed. It feels like we've been displaced. And there are situations right here in this room and and people watching online that are staggering in their weight that may even rival the tragedy that we just read about in Acts chapter 8. And Father, for those men and women, I pray that you would give them peace. And I pray that you would give them faith. Faith to believe that you're still in control. Faith to believe that you are still good, that you still love them. And that faith that I think will come from your spirit as a gift to them will sustain them through a period of scattering. And I pray that in that time of scattering, they would look around and say, all right, I did not choose this, but how can I be used in this? And I pray for the joy of the people around them, that even those in loss and pain and suffering would be witnesses of something enduring and that your joy would spread. And now, Father, I want to pray for those that are in seasons of gathering where life is okay. It's not perfect, but we're reasonably comfortable. We're provided for. Our health is okay. Life's going in a way That's not too far from what we would choose. Father, would you help us to reflect as we breathe that in? Would it create in us gratitude, contentment, and energy? And I pray, Father, that we would begin even more expending that energy for the joy of others and our own joy as we become vessels of your good news in Brentwood, in Franklin, in Nashville, in Middle Tennessee, and to the other ends of the earth. That's your plan for us. That's your good and perfect plan for us to have joy. I pray that we would grab onto it. Only you can do these things, but we pray in confidence because these are the things you have been doing for 2,000 years through your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.